Good morning, Grace. Let's open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I want to say thank you to all who are involved in the decorations of the sanctuary and all the buildings around here. Um, thank you for your hard work. If you're visiting for the first time or you haven't been with us recently, we're going to the book of Ruth. And to kind of bring you up to date, we've been out of it for a couple weeks. Uh, the story centers around Naomi, who is an Israelite woman who left Israel, moved to a foreign land in Moab. There, her husband died and her two boys died. And one of her daughters-in-law named Ruth returns to Bethlehem. Uh, goes behind enemy lines, if you will, to live with the Israelite people. We saw last week that Ruth went out to glean, to gather some food in the fields that surrounded Bethlehem to provide for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And we saw that the narrator told us that Ruth chanced or stumbled upon the field of Boaz. Boaz happened to be a relative of Naomi, and Ruth did not know that. So there's this tension and, and there's this suspense, you know, will God provide for them through Boaz? What will happen? And that's kind of where we're at today. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that we can rejoice today that the Lord is come, that the word has been made flesh, that your son Jesus Christ came into this world born as a little baby boy so many years ago, the God-man Fully God, fully man, with those two natures united in one person. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we all deserved. And by your power, you raised him from the dead, and he is coming again. And we cling to that message this morning. God, may we rejoice. As we open your word, would you cause our hearts to rejoice? May we be so overwhelmed at your great love that because of Jesus, you forgive us of everything, every sin that we have ever done and will ever do, that you see us as blameless, that you love us. Would you impress that into our hearts this morning? How much you love us, even though we're dirty but we're clean in your eyes, even though we sin daily, moment by moment, and you love us with an everlasting love. Press that into our hearts. Work that into our hearts this morning that we may go and serve others. Do it now by the power of your spirit and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes, if you're like me, we just want to do the minimum. We want to do the bare minimum of what is required. There is a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon comic strip that illustrates this truth. Calvin and Hobbes, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, comic strip of all time. In the story, if you don't know Calvin, he's this rambunctious six-year-old with this imaginary stuffed tiger, Hobbes, that comes to life. Here's, this is typical of Calvin, by the way. His mother says, goodness, you're filthy, into the tub with you. And the next scene, we see that Calvin is in the bathtub, and he, we only see his head, but he says, I obey the letter of the law, if not the spirit. The next scene, you see his mother yelling upstairs, let's hear some running water. Let's hear some water running. And then we see Calvin, still dirty, with his clothes on, climbing out of an empty bathtub, saying, nuts. Sometimes we just want to do 
the minimum, the bare minimum. Today, Boaz and Ruth will challenge us to go beyond the legalistic minimum of what is required. They will challenge us to fulfill not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Boaz and Ruth are a shadow of Jesus Christ who laid his life down for sinners when they were still enemies with him. Boaz and Ruth would tell us today, empty yourself to fill the emptiness of others. Boaz and Ruth and what they do in chapter 2 will scream at us that we are to give up our rights and give up our preferences and give up our wishes and our wants in order to fill the emptiness of others. Now look at verses 4 through 7 and let's unpack this so you can see where I'm getting that. God's word says in verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord Yahweh be with you. And they answered, The Lord Yahweh bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Bo, uh, Naomi, Ruth, finally getting to the character. Ruth is, is in the fields, and we know that she stumbled. She, she chanced in... And, you know, the narrator is winking at us when he says that. She chanced upon the field of Boaz, who happened to be related to her dead husband and to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So she stumbles upon the field of this near relative. And we sit wondering about Boaz because we heard about him last week. And then guess who shows up all of a sudden? It's Boaz. Verse 4 says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. What's interesting is that the narrator uses this Hebrew word, hene. And every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's an invitation. It means to, to look, see, or behold. It's an invitation to the audience, to the reader, to, to come into the scene, to enter the scene and, and see what's happening. It's as if the narrator is saying here, Ruth chanced. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. She chanced upon the field of Boaz. And guess who showed up? Come here, guys, look at this. Look, audience, see it with your own eyes. It's Boaz himself. Now, we were introduced to Boaz a few uh, weeks ago in, in the first few verses of chapter 2. And we saw that he was a, a godly man, a man of character and substance and wealth. And we wonder, is he going to live up to his reputation it's the time of the judges, a dark period in Israel's history when people did what was right in their own eyes. How does Boaz, the owner of the field, the boss, the man in charge, how does he show up? Will he be cranky, demanding, overbearing? He shows up and he says, the Lord Yahweh be with you. And the people reply, the Lord bless you. Boaz shows up and says, Yahweh be with you. Yahweh's blessing upon you. I don't know about you, but I've never had a boss show up and say that to me at work. The Lord be with you today. Who is this man, Boaz? He certainly serves as a model for those of you who have companies and are managers and have people working under you. It was a reminder to me this week even, you know, do we show grace like that to the people underneath us? From beginning to end, 
the conversation of Boaz will be characterized by God's grace. So it's no wonder that his employees respond the way that they do when they say, and the Lord bless you. So Boaz shows up and then he notices someone in his fields gleaning. He sees Ruth. He asks the young man the, who was in charge of all the reapers who were gleaning, the director of field management, pun intended there. He says, whose young woman is this? Points to Ruth. It's an interesting phrase because literally in Hebrew it's, to whom does this woman belong? So when he says, whose young woman is this? Pointing at Ruth, he says, who does she belong to? Suddenly some of you men like the book of Ruth. I kind of like that kind of talk. The women that belong to us. Men, don't leave here today using this verse as your proof text that you own your wife and that she belongs to you. But the idea behind this phrase, and we've seen it all along in this book, is that in this patriarchal society, women were dependent upon men for survival. They were dependent upon their husbands and their kids to help care for them. Their identity was wrapped up in their relationship to their husbands. So Boaz assumes that Ruth belongs to someone. She's too good to be on the market. She says, who does she belong to? So he points her out. And it's pretty staggering because the first time, this is the first time in the book of Ruth, that Ruth is a spectacle among the Israelites. She came back with Naomi and the focus was on Naomi. Is this Naomi? Here for the first time, she stands out. And the director of field management then tells Boaz who she is. She's the Moabite woman who came back here with Naomi. She's the one that everyone's been talking about. Literally, his words are very Star Wars, kind of Yoda-like in the Hebrew language. That's kind of the way the Hebrew language works. I think Yoda would read Hebrew and understand it because in Hebrew it's a young woman, a Moabite she is. So you have to read it like Yoda, a young woman, a Moabite she is, to get the sense of the Hebrew here. Obviously the town was abuzz about Ruth. No doubt Boaz had received those forwarded emails with all capital letters in the subject lines that said, young, friendly companion returns to Bethlehem with bitter old hag. He's heard all about her. He's seen her on the news. He's heard reports about her. He's read it in the newspaper. He was aware of Ruth. He knew who she was, but he had never seen her. He had never met her, but he heard all about her. He heard how she left her comfort zone her homeland of Moab, and went to an unknown land to live with an unknown people with foreign customs and a foreign God. He heard how Ruth had expressed hesed, that Hebrew word which means loyal covenant love. How she had expressed that to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth is doing our big idea today. Empty yourself to fill the emptiness of others. Ruth models for us in this chapter what that looks like. Now, notice what the director of field management says about Ruth. Look at verse 7. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. 
What the man is saying is that Ruth has worked nonstop all morning. She took a break at 10.15 when everyone else did, but then she's back at it. Her hard work and her work ethic further highlight Ruth's character. She's not lazy. She's not just sitting around waiting for God to provide. She steps out and does something. She has left her comfort zone. She's emptying herself out giving up her rights and preferences in order to fill the emptiness of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to provide for her. She could have just gathered a few bundles of barley and headed home, but Ruth is committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and caring for her and providing for her. She has worked nonstop, emptying herself to fill the emptiness of Naomi. In fact, Ruth was risking her life. As I mentioned, it's the time of the judges, a dark period in Israel's history when people do what is right in their own eyes. She's a woman. She's a widow. She's a Moabite, a foreigner. So she's risking her life to go out into the fields. She might be abused by the reapers, as we will see in the text. The possibility is there. She had every reason to fear them, but she steps out anyway. Her commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, surpassed her fear of the unknown. She's so committed to her mother-in-law that she says, I don't care about the risks. I don't care about the fear that's there. That love, that commitment is overriding my fear that I'm stepping out and trusting in the Lord to provide. See, the challenge for us as we look at Naomi is that we would leave the safe places and the comfort zones of our lives. The challenge for us is to empty ourselves out, to give up our rights, our wishes, our preferences, our wants, and to fill the emptiness of others. It's not a popular thing to do. It's a radical thing to do. You know why it's radical? Because we love safety. We love comfort. We don't like risk. Our tendency is to congregate around those people that we like. We don't typically take new people into our groups. We don't like to be stretched and give up our preferences to bring good to others. Why? Because we are selfish at our core. We are in a love affair with ourselves. We look at the person in the mirror and we love that person with undying devotion because of Genesis 3, because Adam sinned and we were all born selfish sinners in this world and we worship ourselves. We don't like to get out of our comfort zones. We don't like to be around people that we don't know or that we don't like. Listen, Grace, empty is the new full. This is what Jesus teaches us. Jesus had everything and he became nothing. Jesus was full, but he emptied himself and gave up his rights. Jesus shows us that to die to self is to truly live. Do you want to live? Do you know why you were created be important to know that you're created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you want to do that? The best way to do that is to die to yourself. And when you die to your own wishes and wants and desires so that other people can have joy, you will then experience true life. 
We think that by loving the person in the mirror and giving them everything that want that will bring freedom to us. It brings shackles. It brings chains. True freedom comes when you die to yourself. You give up all of your rights, all of your preferences, so that good can come to other people. And when you do that, you will taste and experience a freedom that you have never known. And you will wonder why other people don't do it. And you will wonder why you don't do it. Because you will finally begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. And His ways are right. Jesus' life his death and his resurrection say to us, empty yourself to fill the emptiness of others. And this is exactly what Boaz does. Look at verse 8 with me. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz puts flesh on our big idea today, this principle of emptying yourself out to fill the emptiness of others. Watch how he empties himself, but he goes beyond the legalistic minimum. The legalistic minimum was leave the corners of your fields, let the poor, the widowed, the foreigner come in, let them glean, let them take it. You don't charge it, you give it to them for free. Leave the corners of your fields. For the poor to come in. That was the legalistic minimum. And now Boaz is going to go beyond that. And he's going to tell Ruth. You know what? Get in the middle of the field. Glean behind the women. He'll eventually instruct his workers to pull bundles of barley out. Drop them for her. And don't scold her when she picks them up. He goes beyond the legalistic minimum. Which is what we normally shoot for. Boaz does this in several ways. First, he's very protective. He calls her my daughter. He breaks down the barriers that separate him from her. Like a loving father, he offers her protection and resources. He tells her, don't go to another field. Stay put here. You can glean all you want. You may be in danger if you go somewhere else. It's the time of the judges. There's wicked people out there who claim to be Israelites. Stay here. You'll be safe. He says, stay with the young women. Stay close to them, follow them, glean where they glean. In fact, the word he uses here for keep close is the word that the narrator used in Ruth 1.14 when it said that Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi. He's saying, cling to these girls, follow them, do what they do, and you'll be safe. You'll, you'll glean correctly, you'll do the right thing. Then he says, the young, men, women, or the young men won't touch you. The Hebrew word here for touch can mean touch, but it could also mean to strike, to harass, to mistreat, to take advantage of. And then he says, drink all you want. Normally, foreigners would draw water for the Israelites. And if there are any Israelites around, the women would draw the water for the men. But he says, you know what? You can go and drink all the Gatorade you want. I have provided it. It is yours. 
Boaz is too good to be true. Ladies, this is the kind of man you want. He's got character and he's got money. So how does Ruth, that wasn't supposed to be funny. <laughs> Just makes sense. If you're going to get married, you want character first. And then if he's, you want a guy that works, right? Boaz is too good to be true. So how does Ruth respond? She worshiped him. Literally, it's fell on her face and worshipped him. Once again, some of you men who formerly thought the book of Ruth was all about mushy love and reserved for women's retreats and women's Bible studies, suddenly you have an interest in the book of Ruth. Oh, she fell down and worshipped him. Hmm. She fell down and worshipped him. And all the men said, yeah. No man said amen because they know. <laughs> before you lead men, before you lead your wives in a devotional from this verse tonight and tell her to worship you, let me explain what the text means and not what the text says. It's very important. It's not a proof text for you men to say it's biblical for your wife to worship you, okay? Sorry, it's not. This verse illustrates the biblical understanding of worship because it uses the word for worship here. The Hebrew word for worship occurs only here in the book of Ruth, and it denotes the physical gesture of prostration that is falling to one's knees and bowing with face and nose to the ground before royalty or deity. Again, settle down, husbands and men. You are not royalty and deity. The gesture was performed as a greeting, a mark of respect or an expression of gratitude. It is often used of a socially inferior person bowing down before someone who is superior. Kind of like when the the president walks into Congress, they stand, they recognize his authority. That's what Ruth is doing here. She's not worshiping Boaz, but she's recognizing his worth, showing him honor, showing him respect. Because Boaz emptied himself and went beyond the legalistic minimum of just letting people glean in his fields. He's giving up of himself to Ruth. You may be saying, so what? He's, he's rich. He's got money. It's easy for him to do. Remember, they're coming off the heels of a famine. It's likely he's drained all of his resources. This would be the perfect time when the economy is bad for Boaz to hoard his resources for himself. And yet we see him saying, don't go to the corners. Get in the middle and take all you want. He goes beyond the legalistic minimum. What happens when we go beyond the legalistic minimum and we give and serve of our time and talent and treasures? It produces gratitude in people, which is exactly what it produced in Ruth. Notice how grateful Ruth is in verse 10. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth is self-conscious about her Moabite identity. She now stands out in the crowd. So how can Boaz be so gracious and kind to her? He can do it because hesed, loyal covenant love, transcends racial barriers, cultural barriers, and social barriers. Boaz then answers her question, perhaps the foreman The director of field management and all the reapers wanted to know, why are you being so gracious to this foreign woman? He he answers her in verse 11. Look at verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. 
and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What's interesting is that Boaz doesn't refer to her by her name, neither do the workers, but Boaz knows this is the Moabite girl who came back with Naomi. I've heard all about her. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing for you. The whole town has been talking about you. You, the Moabite, are acting more like an Israelite than your mother-in-law, Naomi. People are talking about you. You're a Moabite, and you're doing what the Israelites are supposed to be doing. And that's precisely why Boaz goes beyond the legalistic minimum by showing such favor to Ruth. Because he recognizes that Ruth has gone beyond the legalistic minimum in helping her mother-in-law, Naomi. Both Boaz and Ruth exemplify this principle. Empty yourself to fill the emptiness of others. For most of us, we are comfortable with the minimum. We come to church, we give, if we give, and then we leave. We're like Calvin. We hop in the bathtub. We know we're supposed to go to church, but we're disconnected. We're not involved. We don't give financially. We don't pray. We don't serve. We're just like Calvin. We come here on Sunday and we leave. We do the letter of the law, but we don't do the spirit of the law. That's the bare bones of Christianity, to come to church, to give, to pray, sing, to hear his word, and go. There is so much more grace. Don't settle. Empty yourself out for others. Go beyond the legalistic minimum. Lay your life down. Sacrifice your time, your talent, and your treasures for other people. Get out of your cliques. Get around people that you don't know. Invite someone to lunch that you don't know. Invite someone to lunch that you don't like. Ruth has left her comfort zones to reach out to her mother-in-law. Look at verse 12 with me. The Lord repay you for what you have done. This is Boaz speaking. And a full reward be given you by the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Notice how Boaz prays a blessing on Ruth here and how he describes the Lord Yahweh. He says, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the gospel here. She has taken refuge and experienced loyal love from the Lord. She's a disciple. She's a Christian now. She has taken refuge under his wings. So she now in turn pours herself out for Naomi And then God in his grace brings Boaz along to demonstrate that loyal love to Ruth. Ruth empties herself to fill Naomi and there she is empty if you will. And God in his sovereignty brings Boaz to fill her emptiness. This is nothing more than a snapshot and a foreshadowing of the gospel. That Jesus would come do this very thing for us in order to bring us to God. But it continues, look at verse 13. Then Ruth said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat down beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate 
until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an aphah of barley. All right, let's talk about what's happening in verses 13 through 17 here. In verse 13, Boaz comforted Ruth and spoke kindly to her. The word here for comfort can mean to breathe deeply, meaning that Boaz has relieved her stress and her fear. Naomi and Ruth, and Ruth particularly, is in a situation. You've got to picture her like someone who's walking along the side of the highway trying to gather cans to turn them, aluminum cans to turn them in to get some change in order to survive. That is her predicament. And now when Boaz does what he does for her, it says it brings comfort to her, relieves her stress and her fear. And then it says, she says, you have spoken kindly. Literally, it's you have spoken to my heart. Notice also how Ruth refers to herself as a servant. The word that she uses is, was used of people in that day of someone who was on the lowest rung of the social ladder. But even Ruth says, I can't even be one of your servants. I can't even be on the bottom of the social rung, the bottom of the ladder. I'm even lower than that. Why are you showering me with such love and mercy and grace? And then verse 14, it continues, because when the lunch whistle blows, Boaz calls her over. Apparently, she was sitting by herself. Another chance for us to think about how do we treat the outsiders here at church or work or at school? Those who aren't in our cliques, are we reaching out to them? So Boaz calls her over. He will not just let her eat dry bread. He offers her the spiced wine, which was this uh, some sort of flavored sauce or condiment used for dipping. Greg, if you're here, the Hebrew specifically says that this was not mayonnaise, okay? So we, the principle we take from that is don't put mayonnaise on any of the sandwiches that you're bringing to the annual business meeting tonight. Because you are coming to the annual business meeting, right? We're voting on elders and a budget. We need you to be there. Just put the mayonnaise on the side. I digress. Boaz just showers her, showers her with food. But notice, as Daniel Block states, obviously this verse is not simply about feeding the hungry. The narrator hereby shows how Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion, generosity, and acceptance. In short, the biblical understanding of hesed. The text offers no hint of any romantic attraction between Boaz and Ruth. Given the racial and social barriers that separated them, the thought would have not crossed Ruth's mind, and she could not have known that he was a kinsman of her deceased husband. And as for Boaz... He was simply a good man sent by God to show favor to this woman. The wings of God are not only comforting to the Israelites, they offer protection even for the despised Moabites. And then it continues in verses 15 through 16. Boaz tells his workers to let Ruth glean beyond the corners of the field. And then he says, pull out some of the sheaves, drop the bundles on the ground for her, let her pick them up. And when she picks them up, 
Do not scold her. Again, he's showering her with grace here. Verse 17, we see that Ruth labored hard and she gleaned an ephah of grain. This weighed somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds and she carries it home. She's a hard worker. The source of Boaz's hesed to Ruth, the source of Ruth's hesed to Naomi was rooted in the goodness and in the character of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Their actions of loyal covenant love are screaming at us today. Empty yourself to fill the emptiness of others. And as if we don't get the point, the narrator drives it home even further in verses 18 through 23. It's full of God's sovereignty. It's full of God's goodness. It's full of God's grace. It's, it's full of the gospel. If this was a scratch and sniff Bible, you could scratch this here. You remember those old stickers? And you could smell God's grace coming forth from these verses. Look at verse 18. So Ruth took it up and went into the city, and Naomi saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, Naomi, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This section is just full of God's grace to these poor, destitute, needy widows who have absolutely nothing in this world. Ruth gave Naomi her leftover food that Boaz had given her at lunchtime, And then she showed her the 30 to 50 pounds of grain that she brought home. That was all God's grace. Naomi asked Ruth where she gleaned. And can you imagine the look on Naomi's face when she uttered the name Boaz? And Naomi's like, he's one of our redeemers. He can save us. He can help us. That's all God's grace. Slowly, God is giving them little bits of his grace to sustain them through their trial. Boaz was a close relative and one of the redeemers. He could redeem Naomi and Ruth, buy Naomi's land and care for them. It was nothing more than God's grace. Boaz told Ruth to stay close to his young women lest she be assaulted and attacked by others. It's all God's grace. Ruth gleaned for two months. The barley harvest was from late March to late April. The wheat harvest was from late April to late May. This is nothing more than God's provision. They're not just collecting a a bag full of aluminum cans. They're coming home. They're stocking the cupboards. They're stocking the fridge. They're having to buy an extra freezer to put in the garage because they're overflowing with God's goodness and grace and kindness to them. And then it says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She could have got back on her feet. 
She could have got her own apartment, but Ruth is committed to Naomi. This is all grace. And the only way that Boaz could show that kind of grace to Ruth, the only way that Ruth could show that kind of grace to Naomi is because they both had experienced God's grace firsthand. You can't give out what you do not possess, what you do not have. You can't empty yourself to fill the emptiness of others unless you are filled up with God, unless you are so overwhelmed at how good God has been to you in the gospel. You'll never move beyond yourself unless the gospel gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart and you say, I want to give because this is what Jesus does. This is what the gospel is all about. You can't go beyond the legalistic minimum unless you have experienced God. Your service to others must be rooted in the gospel, rooted in God as the source. And then you are set free from those shackles of selfishness to serve others. And what joy you will experience and what freedom you will experience when you do. Now, how do we do that? Philippians 2 tells us, Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Count others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others more important than yourselves. Are you kidding me, Paul? Really? I'm supposed to count everybody else as more important than me? Does Paul know Benji Magnus, I am the most self-centered, selfish person on this planet. I go and I stare at the reflection in the mirror and I love what I see and I want to give him everything that he wants and I want everybody else to do that. How dare you, Paul, tell me to count others more important than myself? Look after the interests of others. Are you kidding me? I'm not preaching at you, Grace. I'm just coming clean here this morning. I'm selfish. I'm sinful. And I love me. I am madly in love and madly devoted to me and my well-being and everything I want. I want it now. And I want all of you to do it for me. So how in the world am I, who's so wrecked by sin and so selfish, how in the world am I ever to count others more important than myself? Are you kidding me? This is how I live my life. 40 years of I'm the most important person around here. Everybody bow down and worship me. How in the world am I ever to change my heart? I have to keep reading the verse. Most of the theological quandaries and conundrums that we face will be solved if we just keep reading the verse. The few verses that follow or the few verses that are before and quit ripping things out of context. How do I do this, Paul? He tells us in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you want to empty yourself out to fill the emptiness of others? Some of you say, may say, nope, not at all. Then you need to look to Jesus. And if you want to, you say, but yeah, I struggle like you do, Benji. I'm selfish. I love me. 
I want me. Me wants what it gets. You look to Jesus. It's that simple. You look to Jesus and you see what he did for you and what he did for me, how he became a nobody, a slave, a servant. He gave up all of his rights so that we might be made right with God for those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Do you want to get out of your cliques and your comfort zones and serve others? Look to Jesus. The gospel is tangible evidence that Jesus gave up his rights, became a slave, became a servant, became a nobody in order to fill our emptiness. Do you want to empty yourself out to fill the emptiness of others? Then you have to fill yourself up with the gospel. You have to fill yourself up with grace. You have to eat and breathe and drink grace and become bloated with grace and so full that you're, a, you're like, I got up, I'm Bursting at the seams. I've, I've got to share this. The problem with us is that we're hoarders. We're grace hoarders. We're like dams and cul-de-sacs. Give me your grace, God. Give me your forgiveness. Give me your kindness. Give me your love. But I don't want to go give it to anyone else. They wronged me. They hurt me. And I'm not going to give it. But I'll take yours. Thank you very much. That's what we do. We're grace hoarders. And we should be taking grace in, but it should cause us to kick open the floodgates and say, now here's grace for you because I've been so transformed. I'm so loved. I'm forgiven that I will love my enemy. I will forgive those who have hurt me. I will ask people who are out there who bother me to come into my clique to spend time with. That's what grace does. That's what the gospel does when it gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart. You fill up on grace. You get stuffed with God's grace and then you go empty yourself and fill the emptiness of others. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did and what he is calling us to do. Jesus, as my friend Gunny Hartman says, Jesus was born to serve. Christian, you were born again to serve. Empty is the new full. You are filled to be emptied again. You want to experience life, peace, and joy? Just become a servant. It's, it just doesn't seem like it makes sense. Give up my rights and serve others and I'll be the happiest person. You will if you do it. How might this church change? How might this city change if we became people who said, I love the fact that God has been so good to me that I'll give up my rights I give up my preferences. Here's the remote control. You pick the show that we watch tonight. That's as practical as it gets. And that's what the gospel will do for you when it gets into your hearts. You will say, you don't deserve to be forgiven, but I forgive you. You don't deserve to be loved on because, man, everybody doesn't like you, but I am going to love you. I'm going to invite you over to my place to hang out with me because that's what Jesus did for me when I was dead in my sins and an enemy of his. Listen, we will change this city, this church will change, and God will get great glory. It's win, win, win. Joy comes to other people, joy comes to you, and glory goes to God. It's win, win, win. Sometimes I scratch my head and say, why in the world do I not live this way more? We must remember the words of Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You will be more happy if you give than if you hoard. You'll be more happy if you serve 
and if you sit back and are served by people. May God give us the grace to shatter the mirrors, to fall out of love with ourselves and fall so much in love with him that we want to minister and fill others up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word so convicting to me because I am so selfish and I love, love, love myself. I think I'm great and I think I'm awesome, God, and I need you to come break my heart again. Break all of our hearts, God. We're, we're selfish. We're sinners. We've been wrecked by the fall. May you and your transforming, powerful grace change us today, that we would be servants, that we would look to the interest of others and consider other people more important to us. And would you do that as we look to your son, Jesus, and all that he is for us, in whose name we pray, amen.